0: Hello everyone and welcome to the sixth episode of Design Is Not Neutral. Today's guest is Bobby Joe Smith III. Bobby Joe is a Black and Lakota graphic designer and media artist. Design computation, performance, writing, and lens-based image making are mediums of expression and inquiry he turns to often. His creative practice is rooted in the ongoing decolonial and abolitionist movements led by indigenous communities on Turtle Island and across the Black diaspora. His research draws from the decolonial, abolitionist, and post-apocalyptic strategies of Black and Indigenous people to construct a poetic vernacular of unsettling grammars, gestures, methodologies, and utterances that deviate, disrupt, and dismantle settler-colonial systems. By rearticulating these unsettling grammars through the disciplines of media art and design, Bobby Joe seeks to reveal vectors leading toward decolonial futures and generate work that resonates with the people and movements that compromise his community. He currently is pursuing an MFA from UCLA's Design and Media Arts Department, and holds an MFA in Graphic Design from the Rhode Island School of Design, a post-bac degree in Graphic Design from the Maryland Institute College of Art, and a BA in Philosophy and Political Science from Middlebury College. Welcome and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello. How are you?
1: I'm doing pretty good just you know trying to make it day to day just surviving.
0: <laughs> yeah well I mean kind of going from there you have a quite a few degrees so, so many. So I, yeah many <laughs> so I wondered if you could kind of take me through a little bit of your journey of um, getting into design and then and then getting into design teaching and education too.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so my I studied at Middlebury College for undergrad and was really into well, initially I went there, honestly, to do short story writing. Um, and I was really interested in short story writing that had like political or social context to it. Um, and they have a school there called the Breadloaf School of English, which is basically just in the mountains of Vermont. And they get all these writers together over the summer and they, you know, Right, <laughs> I was like, that sounds oh. perfect. I'm going to be like Robert Frost. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> um, and then I got there my freshman year and was studying. To be able to get into creative writing, you have to study like Amlet, American literature. And I was just like, I'm not about this. I don't, I don't want to, I don't relate to any of these texts from the 1800s. Um, and was just like, I found a lot more political and science and philosophy courses to be interesting. So I double majored in that and became really interested in policy, um, particularly federal Indian policy and worked in DC for a while and was, you know, gonna get a set up to get a joint degree in um, law and public policy. And just having worked in DC for a long time, like I really cared about the issues. I really cared about Mm -hmm. making policy still really value it today. But I didn't like the day-to-day job of reading legal briefs all day, every day, and like just going through contracts and um, didn't think that I would fully enjoy that. I also just noticed like a lot of issues related to Native communities, the ones that I cared about, if they were on the agenda at all of any politician, they're at the bottom of the agenda. So... A lot of the experience there trying to get issues that really impacted and were meaningful to Native communities and have some sort of voice and representation was really challenging to do because we didn't have a lot of our communities are a small voter base um, and didn't have a lot of money, which are the two things that politicians really like listen to the most. So, um, I felt like, well, I kind of wanted, I need to do something else or like, I want to, I want to have a different type of impact. I want to see the things that I want to see in the world and that I wish I had growing up. And I also kind of like asked myself the question, well, what can I do all day, every day that doesn't feel monotonous and boring? And at that time it was photography. Uh, and I was like, okay, I don't know how I'm going to spin this to my family that I'm not going to become a lawyer. And that I'm going to (laughs) move. (laughs) to new york to be a photographer um but but i did and uh i just really enjoyed the process of making things of coming up with a vision for something and um bringing it into reality in some way and having to collaborate with either the person i'm photographing or my photograph team or whatever it was uh and there was something really empowering about that um and I just kind of like wanted to figure out, well, how can I do this in a way that is meaningful to my community at that time? It literally just meant photographing black and indigenous people. And, and I remember being in New York at that time and people saying, you can't photograph black people. I mean, you can do it, but you will never get it picked up in a magazine. So it's a waste of money. Um, but that's who I wanted to photograph. So <laughs> I just <kinda> kept, <laughs> kept doing that. Um but that did prompt me to kind of like leave the industry. I didn't really see it as a professional space that I wanted to continue. Also, a lot of like publishing houses and stuff were were closing, like the physical print magazines were closing. Yeah. So the industry was just changing in general. Um, and it felt like a place where you already had to be independently wealthy and be able to do a number of photo shoots that you funded from your own pocket and then get paid for to even get your name recognized. And it's just like I can't do that. Yeah. Um, I got into a program to learn computer programming uh, that was taught by like queer folks of color in Washington, D.C. called Code for Progress. And I I really struggled to go there because I was loving New York
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, was like, okay, do I really want to go back to D.C.? Everybody looks grumpy <laughs> there. Like, I, I don't know. Um,
0: it's hard to leave New York. Yeah yeah
1: (laughs) it's hard to leave New York you know I felt like I had suffered and is making some traction and was like okay I'm really gonna go I was like all right well I'll learn computer programming worst comes to worst I'll learn how to develop my own website for my photo business um Mm -hmm. and ended up finding in that a bridge to like all right this is how I can make digital applications I can uh that are meaningful, like tools that are meaningful to the movements and communities I come from. And I felt like that was the creative bridge I needed back into the issues that I cared about when I was, you know, going down a policy route. Yeah. Um, and eventually, like I had been working around a couple different places as an intern doing development. And, um, I just like became clear to me. I really enjoyed having a vision and then trying to bring it into reality. Uh, and that's when I started looking at art and design schools. Well, specifically design schools, I didn't want to do art because I felt like that was too removed from society. At least a lot of the art galleries that I went to never really had an impact on me. Uh, I felt like it was very like self referential versus being something that's useful. And I applied to the Maryland Institute College of Art and was really into um, some of the writing that Ellen Lupton did, who is. Um, you know, a big designer in her own right, but as the head of the program there. Mm -hmm. And she was specifically saying what I wanted to hear, which is like, design is different than fine art. Like design is about problem solving. Um, And I was like, great, I have some really big problems that I wanna solve. Um, How can we use design to do that? So I went there to get a post back. Um, a one year program for people who've already graduated from undergrad in something other than design or art. And you can use that post-bac degree to then continue with an MFA if you want to, or just go straight into working. So it's really like a portfolio building year. Okay. And I applied with a photography portfolio. Did it have, you know, I couldn't answer the question, what's your favorite typeface? Like I I couldn't do any of that really, you know, who's your favorite designer? I was like, I, I just learned that this was a a job that you could do like (laughs) two days ago. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) graphic design seemed to be this place where it could bring together all these interests Mm -hmm. um it felt like it was medium agnostic uh and then yeah while i was there that's when the no dapple movement um really started and you can see the pictures from uh behind me actually of uh one of the demonstrations that we helped or a march or rally that happened there that uh, my cousin and i helped organize in Mm -hmm. dc And so I was spending a lot of time in Baltimore, like going back home to North Dakota to help like organize there, going to DC to organize, because a lot of things are happening outside of the Supreme Court. And um, just feeling like having very directly the question, how can design impact these decolonial movements that are really important to me? There's also the Black Lives Matter movement was flaring up um, the first time and particularly in Minnesota, Minneapolis, as for because of the killing of Philando Castile and, uh, Jamar Clark. Uh, and then later when I ended up graduating from RISD is when literally the day of my thesis presentation, it was when we found out about George Floyd. So I felt like I had gone through this long period of education around design and how could it impact communities? And I'm being faced with the same issue that I had when I started. Uh, but so, yeah, so I got my post back, um, that question of how can design impact, you know, decolonial uh, community or movements, how can we use, what does a black and indigenous design practice look like? Mm -hmm. Those were interesting enough to me to continue to learn an MFA. Again, I was gonna go in for one year, of design, I wasn't even going to study typography. I told myself that I was like, I don't <laughs> care about type. But <laughs> I'm just here to bring images together, make them look nice. No, I, yeah. and I found this found this uh, field that I really loved and was mm-hmm. curious about, and ended up going to RISD and ended up doing. I got into their two year program, but opted for the three year track because I wanted to learn to teach also. Yeah, um, and that would give me the opportunities to do the extracurricular part of teaching classes and study graphic design and not feel like it was so like, you know, smushed together that I didn't have time to do what I wanted to do, um, to really approach this question that was meaningful to me. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got into it. I started teaching at Mica um, cause I had this background in computer programming. So that was sort of like the bridge into it. Uh, and now, yeah, now I'm at UCLA. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And you're getting another degree, correct?
1: Yeah, so it's yes. another MFA, so it's okay. meaningless uh, <laughs> in terms of adding letters on to the end of my name. But um, yeah, I had...
0: They should just give had, you a PhD at this point. Like, just... <laughs> that's what I'm saying. You know, Double MFA. I, I, was
1: I was initially in a PhD program at MIT and okay. uh, through the Media Lab. and. Um, last minute decided that that wasn't the right place for me and ended up going to UCLA instead. Um, part of it being that they own the intellectual property of anything that you create. So I wasn't like I wasn't quite sure how that works for an artist or a designer. And um, at
0: MIT they own
1: any MIT. yeah, and they have a lot of control over what your research actually is. And I didn't think that the team that I was on was gonna allow me to fully pursue what I wanted to to do in terms of the research. Um, So UCLA had a number of really instructors that I really admire. Um, It was more geared towards art than MIT was. uh, And the sad thing, it was another MFA. The other one would have been like a master's in architecture, so PhD in something else. But like, um, but yeah, so. It's essentially a PhD in terms of number of years.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Just not in the letters that you get
0: afterwards. Yeah. Just give yourself the title. <laughs> <I think>. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's interesting. I feel like most people I talk to, and myself included, no one really like goes in being like, Yes, I want to be a graphic designer. I don't I don't know very many people that went into it saying, okay, yeah, I 100% know that this is what I want to do. And everybody mm. just kind of like finds it accidentally. Um, but maybe one day I'll find someone that like went in with yeah, that. Yeah, they just and knew I, 10
1: years old, like I want to be a yeah, graphic designer. Yeah,
0: like I love <laughs> sitting in front of the computer. Um, so yeah, so you talked a little bit about becoming an, an educator and like that being important to you at RISD. Um, but kind of what drove your interest in that um and was that something that you always planned on doing when you kind of like were growing up or starting school or anything like that
1: yeah no it wasn't something I intended to do at all really um my mom was a teacher uh she taught in us like a magnet school for native students in the twin cities that was started by the American Indian movement and she was a you know, single mother. My, my father passed away before I was born. And so I grew up in this educational space that was also like a decolonial project, although they didn't call it that at the time, but they realized the need to have a space for indigenous families in the Twin Cities where we could learn our own culture, our own language, and just have like an educational environment that's suited towards the needs of our families that, um, and the the native community that was there so I grew up in that space, like my best friends when I was younger were, you know, the children of other educators that were at my mom's school, Um, and it's just a bunch of like aunties basically getting together and being like, how do we teach our kids this language, and um, how do we bring our stories into the, into the curriculum, Um, and that was like a really, really meaningful and influential, but at the same time, my mom was always like, Don't be an educator, like you can do so much more. It was really like pushing the policy. She wasn't pushing the policy route, but she was just like, she felt like I could make a bigger impact through policy. Um, But looking back at it, uh, I remember at the end of undergrad, I actually was applying to Teach for America because they had a position that was in the reservation where I was from. I just remember feeling like, well, if I can impact the number of students that my mom did, like at the end of the day, at the end of a career, whatever, at the end of the year, that's like a really, that's a really big thing. That's meaningful, yeah. um, and I could see the impact that she had made with the students that she had. Um, I think as a teacher, I also saw that she just never like turned it off. You know, there's something about the actual profession that looked really like daunting and, and exhausting, um, but. I think the, like the good space for me is I like working with college students. Cause there's topics that I like to just, not that you can't do it with high schoolers and, and middle schoolers. There's actually a lot that they're able to, to talk about, which is really impressive. Um, but I wanted to teach classes that like students wanted to be in. And, mm-hmm. and that for me feels a lot more like a collaboration, particularly because I was teaching at the time of being a grad student, they, students feel more like your peers they are in similar yeah. age. We're like investigating similar things. Um, and, you know, I know every teacher says like, I learn a lot from the students, but when we're really that close in age and like that close in our career, like we really are learning from each other. Uh, and it turns out that I really enjoy that process. And I found in academia a space for me to ask the question of like, what, how can design impact decolonial movements and sit and think about that which I might not get the same space to do if I were to work at a you know big studio like Pentagram or something. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not getting paid to sit and think about those questions. Um and I certainly don't have a team of students who can also like try to approach that question from their own perspectives. Uh so that's really where academia started to, to click for me is like this is a space that is of interest. I'm seeing professors make this really interesting connection of how their teaching practice informs their professional practice. Um, They're bringing in, you know, these schools, these institutions have all these resources. They're bringing in all of these designers and artists from different backgrounds who are super inspiring. Like, to me, this feels like a really good space, space for knowledge creation and knowledge sharing and that matters a lot to me in a design practice that is, like, fairly deeply informed by research and, and less about, like, consumer trends.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely, and, and when you're in the classroom, when you're in those spaces, what are, I guess, like, do you have some concrete examples of, of lessons that you do, particularly in um, classes that are maybe not That are maybe more about like introductory design or um, like a particular type of design? Are there ways that you Mm. kind of like interweave decolonial practices into your curriculum um, more organically?
1: Yeah, at this point, um, for the more introductory courses, like I'm doing a lot of web design, web development, and typography. the It's less decolonial work and because uh, I'm not entirely sure how people who don't come from like a colonial context or something or from a community that's trying to combat decolonization. It's a lot to like learn, you know, and, and bring yeah. on in addition to like web development, web design. Um, but I do try to uh, like de-invest from some of the canon that is very like European focused even if it's just something as sim- simple in typography is like, if you speak another language, mm-hmm. um, I feel comfortable with you making posters and stuff that is in your own language. And actually, that's really helpful for you to learn typesetting in whatever language that you come from. This is the, like, form of expression. I don't have to be able to read it. Like, I can visually read whether this is working in terms of, you know, kerning, whatever it is. <laughs> in terms of hierarchy, you can still read the poster, but um, yeah. that's something that... I've found like students are grateful for it seems very simple but a lot of students don't feel like they have the space to design in their own language um one of the projects that I learned from Ramon Tejada which is one of my instructors is like all right this design project we're actually designing something for our our grandma our abuela you know our mother like versus this is for a campaign that goes out wherever you know can design be something that you do for an individual person rather than Simply this um, company. So, thinking about who we design for, thinking about the you know the type designers that we use. So, giving them resources, can we make you know use type designers that are are women or people of color? Like, um, can we design in our own language? Those are small moves that don't require um, a lot of like research around decolonization, but maybe yeah. helps them think like, oh, design can be for these other things as well. That isn't necessarily said in some of the other classes
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense typography is interesting specifically to me because you're also purchasing these typefaces from specific people and that can bring in a lot of like um negatives and positives too um especially Mm -hmm. when you're looking at oh gosh uh is it it's gil sands right that (laughs) <laughs> the type designer that has a lot of pedophilia things. So um, much
1: pedophilia! I have yeah. not been able to use that typeface. Yeah, well. <laughs> no,
0: never <again. laughs> But that is something that I started bringing up in my intro to design course, and like, you know, this is something that specifically you should be thinking about when you're purchasing typefaces. Like, this is money that you're giving to people, um to individuals, and like, you control where where that goes. Um, yeah. Yeah. In terms of what you're looking for in a classroom when we, you know, I'm assuming that you probably do critiques or some some kind of review, what do you comes across as like a successful design execution or um, how do you help your students to kind of find that and seek that out? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I kind of base that off of what's been modeled to me in different classes. Um, So one of the things I do try to focus on and, and spend a little bit of time with is discussing with the class like, how do we wanna give critique in this space? Um, And having people really think about taking agency in that critique process. So uh, I think a lot of students don't realize that they can structure the critique to find what's helpful for them. Um, So like maybe this isn't in a place to, you know, I don't want to critique the, the like specifics of like the kerning or whatever, but like is this maybe going in the right visual direction or is this like executing this particular thing? Or even if it's like we don't want it to be or, or want it to be a cold read, or maybe somebody just wants it to be conversational, like to think about how do they want to receive information. Um, so that's one part that I think is really important. <clears throat> and then the other part of just like setting up in the beginning of the class, hearing what their expectations are for design and and what I think it could be and having that discussion with them ideally I want to have them in a place where like yeah we want really like strong critique like I really want to become good at this and even if that means we have like discussions where you know it fails like that's fine but if if part of it is like we just kind of like want to become a little bit more familiar with typography which is you know in the initial rounds perhaps it's like they're so scared of like doing something wrong with type that it's like, let's just have fun with it. Let's, let's allow for that expression and experimentation. And then as we move along, we can really focus on like refinement, you know, and being really specific about, about things. But for right now, we're just trying to learn the terminology. We're just trying to have some fun with it. Like, let's make a bunch of mistakes. Um, Let's design type right off the bat before we know anything about typography. Let's see what you just naturally make. Like, I really try to figure out with the classroom like to gauge the temperature and what they wanna do um, and then try to like structure the program around that. That's worked a lot better than when I, for me, than when I just come in with like, this is what we're doing um, and really don't have any room to to deviate or tailor it to the needs and interests of the group. So um, that's kind of what critique looks like. I, And I I think another part of that is, you know, how do we give critique? We're Mm -hmm. thrown in these critique spaces, but not really like um, given instruction about like, what is this and how do we do this in a way that's meaningful or beneficial? And you hear so many traumatic stories from people who are like, yeah, it's not a real crit unless somebody cries. I'm like, why is that? Where does that come from? <laughs> yeah, know? I don't know. Like, you do, you can't trust feedback unless it makes you cry. Like, that make any sense. <laughs> but that's something I've I've heard from multiple people and mm-hmm. I wish it was a joke, but it's, it's like real. Um, so just being intentional instead of saying like, this is awful. And I heard this from my instructors too. Like they'd have these really well-known you know, designer Paul Rand or whatever is like looking at their work and they just come in and tear shit off the wall and like, this is garbage and walk all over it. And like, that's, why does this need to happen? This is, you know, fortunately they weren't like that in the classroom. They realized like, (laughs) we don't need to do that. But they still share those stories and it was clearly some sort of like traumatic thing for them. Um, But anyway, it's like just framing things, asking questions to the person who did the design first rather than, like just critique, like try to understand where they're coming from. And then I think from there we can assess whether or not it's doing well based on what their intention is. Um, those are, so those are some of the things, I think there's a lot of like pre-work that needs to be done to allow us to have the space as a group to feel comfortable sharing how to how to grow together. Like that, you can't just say, we're gonna grow. Like You have to like set that up. You have to set up the soil for that to happen.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I wonder, I think about that a lot. I'm like, I would never ever want to conduct a critique where somebody is feeling that level of like anxiety or pain. Um, and but I've seen it happen in you know in my education history too, like in classes where I've had to leave the room and cry and like that, that I would never mm-hmm. want to pass that along. I, I do want to ask you a little bit about like your own kind of personal belief system within design and, and if it's changed at all. You mentioned um, Alan Lupton's writing about seeing design as problem solving. Um, do you still view design as having this like such divided thing from art, I guess? Or do you, do you now see it as more interweaved and intertwined?
1: Yeah, I feel that that that, uh, that division that happened there was important for me at the time for somebody who felt uncomfortable with the art world, like um, who didn't see myself represented in the things that I would see when I would go to the few times that I'd go to an art museum. I never felt like a part of the conversation in any way. I didn't feel like there were works coming from my community that spoke to my experience of course i couldn't articulate all that at the time i just felt uncomfortable in those spaces um and i was still trying to justify in some way the move from like policy you know that is supposed to impact my community to photography i'm like i i don't know how i make as big of an impact with the, with the camera as i could with potentially theoretically with policy um so i needed that voice of like This isn't about self-expression. You're working with clients and it matters whether people understand what you're doing. Um, And I still hold that a little bit to graphic design. But when I went into RISD, I went to a program that I felt like was pushing what the boundaries of graphic design were. Um, And I felt like the question that I had was pushing what I understood graphic design to be because it was being used not in a commercial context, but in terms of you know, uh, language uh, revitalization, um, preventing oil pipelines from being built in your backyard. You know, those were different expressions of design than I was being taught within the classroom. So I wanted that boundary expansion. And while that happened, um, I felt I was becoming more comfortable with art history and understanding and being able to be a part of the conversation. And two, feeling like, well, the, the only reason why that boundary is there I feel, is for market legibility. So it's important for myself to call myself a graphic designer so that I can be hired. But the creative practice, when I talk to friends from painting or whatever, like we're going through similar things. Again, well, Rizzi also didn't have like a lot of branding courses or things that you would consider to be, you know, typical, yeah. typically part of the design practice for a profession. So it allowed for more room for like form making and, you know, playing with color and playing with different media um, and finding like experimental ways of publishing. So that that question of, does there need to be a division between design and art became less important to me as a question altogether. Um, I think it was also the approach for, uh, am I an artist or am I an activist? And to me, I'm like, well, I'm approaching activism through a design process. Mm-hmm. So that's still design for me. Um, and I'm approaching design through from a position of activist so that's still activism to me so it's like this different way of like that line maybe doesn't need to be there uh as much as we think it needs to be there this is how I feel comfortable contributing um and it takes like all of these different methods to be able to like come to some sort of goal so I've been feeling like there needs to be less and less of that now again that's different than maybe if you're in a again professional practice where now it is important to call yourself uh, i'm a ux designer specifically or i'm a surface designer i'm a type designer that you know that's for market legibility and that is important in people's life uh and and in their profession but in academia i can be whatever i want to (laughs) be so um but I also noticed a lot of students that were in my program uh, at RISD again, uh, they stopped calling themselves graphic designers. Mm-hmm. They felt like that didn't encompass what they did. They would mainly just call themselves a designer and you'd ask them who their inspiration is. And it often wasn't people from the graphic design field. They were finding inspiration from other creatives, other philosophers, other, you know, whatever else it is. And I saw joy in their practice because of that. And I felt like the visiting artists and designers that came and spoke, who were like, they'd have just like this light in their eyes when they're talking about their, their uh, personal work that they were doing in grad school. And then they talked about the professional work, and he saw that light die because he had all this brilliance and it was being used to sell a suitcase, you know, versus some other thing that was very like deeply existentially meaningful to them.
0: Yeah. I think um, the, I was like trying to figure out what I wanted to do for my thesis project. And so I just started reading. Um, I'm the only, there aren't very many designers in our program. It's like one per discipline per year. So it's just me and then uh, one person below me and that's it. So I didn't have any like huge frame of reference, to like look at in terms of other thesis projects. So I just started Mm -hmm. like, reading thesis projects at other schools so I read like a bunch at RISD at that time <laughs> and I read a bunch at Micah, and I was like oh um I I think I like copied your entire thesis and just like put it in my <laughs> notes app, and like highlighted the part that. where you were like uh, it seems so sad to me all of these um people sitting there using all their creativity to just like build another widget of like an empire I think is the the quote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's yeah. how I feel because I'd been in this commercial space for so long and um, felt so, so separated from, from design. And I still do feel a little bit that way um, because I feel like it is so formed around selling something. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's why uh, I find your work so um, helpful in, in kind of finding, you know, what are you, what are you truly doing? And design can be anything. You can be a designer in, in different ways and in active ways. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: And I I would also say, and this kind of going back to your earlier question about like, maybe how do I bring decolonization into like design education Mm -hmm. around typography specifically? And, I feel like the better way to articulate why I don't as much do that is I don't know if like an institutional context is the right place for Mm. that form of knowledge sharing or even knowledge production. I am very interested in trying to figure out how do I build pedagogy for this. Um, And at the same time, I'm thinking about and this was another thing about MIT was that, all right, I did all this research and this is a place that's deeply uh, funded by the military industrial complex. What does it mean to have this information now to give MIT that access to that to my community and the knowledge that exists there and any type of work that we create around decolonization? I yeah. don't think this is the right space. And ultimately my thesis at RISD, I also contracted a lot of, or retracted a lot of the research and writing I had been doing mm. because I felt like, you know, RISD isn't the right place for this information. So I put up talks I had already given, like basically my thesis book was just, talks later to have. And I'm like, this is the most that you're going to get from my decolonial thinking around this. It's the experiences that you had with me during this program and this time. I am the thesis. I am the work. So you just have those memories. And here's some like fragments of those memories that you can have in your archives, which is generally how people of color and women show up in archives. It's like not our full self, but um, traumatic like fragments <laughs> right? uh, that you have to like piece together to get some yeah. sort of picture
0: we do like a halfway review midpoint of the semester. And I just had like random thoughts, like all over a wall. Um, <laughs> people hated it, but <laughs> that was that's how I feel um, about design and about, and about, you know, I'm still working through it and I'm still piecing it together.
1: Oh, but I was going to say also about the, the pedagogy part. Um, so one of the things I'm really interested in with media art is, how do we build these experiences that can shift thinking uh, because you just had this like experience with art, whether it's like even it brought people's temperature down a little bit, like there was some sort of healing aspect to it or it, you created this like fantastical world in which suddenly people can make and think in a different way than they would constrain to the confines of like gravity or something, right? whatever it is. I'm interested in like how do we how do I have these discussions around decolonization? How do we do knowledge sharing and knowledge building, using art to enhance or shift our thinking or bring in a different perspective? That's something that is really interesting to me, particularly with like simulation. Um, so that that's kind of what I've been, and that's kind of goes into like experiential design or environmental graphics, environmental design. How do you build a space for knowledge sharing and knowledge knowledge learning that doesn't just look like an academic classroom, mm-hmm. but is this thing that people can interact with that can maybe represents them more, uh, that allows them to behave in that space in a different way because of how you've designed it? Um, that's where I'm trying to think of like, this is how we do this education around decolonization. And yeah. I'm approaching it as an artist and designer, you know, um, to see how those things can really impact yeah the lesson yeah
0: that's interesting yeah I um I took a like a trauma and peace building course this semester mostly just because I was interested in it Um, and um we talked a lot we did a whole section actually on uh the design of memorials and and who Mm. those memorials are designed for and it was something I had never ever thought about but they're often designed for like tourists to come and learn about it they're not necessarily designed for the people that maybe live in the community um yeah. so like maybe in a country where people the the dominant language is not English the memorial will still be in English because it's for tourism
1: wow yeah
0: or it's to paint a particular political narrative or and um but yeah, like even how we interact in that space, even how people in the community would then go in and interact in a space that is not meant for them even though it's supposed to be meant for them was mm-hmm. something I'd never thought about before.
1: But. That's, a really, that's a really great example of, you know, art design used for some form of knowledge sharing. Um, even if it's about like state memory, like let's t- the state saying what we want to remember about this space versus the local people saying actually this is the narrative that we care about and we want to like put this out or like have a different narrative than what this Columbus statue is showing you know yeah uh, I'm gonna throw red paint on it because that's actually more of the narrative that feels right to me than the statue of you know the statue of Columbus um, but yeah that's a perfect example of like what I'm thinking about like what type of things can you put in a space as an artist or designer? that shapes the way in which we share knowledge or produce knowledge together.
0: Yeah. Um, And from that, I do, I wanna ask you about, um, uh, like, I guess courses that are focused on um, social design and activist design, because there are, there can be some kind of like designer savior complexes that come into them. Um, and I wondered if you had if you had taken one of those courses or or perhaps taught or thought about them in any context, and if you saw, you know, a way that they can be taught in in a more beneficial way.
1: I haven't been able to take any of those classes. Uh, I am really curious, uh, just around like the discourse around design thinking.
0: Yeah, and That's is
1: this like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean. <laughs> I am it's like, I have been interested in IDEO. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: One that felt like, again, oh, a really great place where it's like a bridge between my love of policy and design, right? Or right. like my need to prove that a design practice is like meaningful to my community, to my mom and grandma. Or like, why are you not a lawyer again? Um, but uh sorry i got i got thrown off track oh yeah but um so i've been really interested to see okay this is like people who are really putting forward this is what design thinking is i want to know it better what are you saying are there things that are useful are there things that feel very uh like a, a new neoliberal agenda is this just something that you're packaging to be able to sell uh to sell the same old thing where you're like you know, social justice washing it versus like greenwashing, you know, packaging or something. Um, so I wish I could say that I, I can speak to it from a place of experience, uh, but I haven't been able to yet. I, I think in general, what I was experiencing when I was at RISD, fortunately, and I was talking about like wanting to use design to help social context, there's people, the professors in particular really questioned whether design could make an impact you know, and they're like, let's not, Ow. let's not overblow graphic design's ability to help. You know? <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a really fair critique. You know, again, the mm-hmm. canvas so- or not again, we were just talking about this with somebody, but like the canvas social justice warrior, like makes mm-hmm. a post on Instagram and we would question whether or not they're real activists and whether or not they're a real designer because of the platform that they used. you know, which is crazy. I mean, they're being, they're engaging in some way, but like, is it enough? Is that, can you feel good about yourself at the end of that? Um, I, I, I think I kind of left those discussions that thinking around one, um, I don't think design is the only thing that's going to solve a problem. I think, I don't think that there's any medium or profession that's going to solve a problem, even something that has a huge impact directly in people's lives, something like war, uh, you know, you can really change the situation of what's happening on the ground, but does that going to be, is war going to be the only thing that gets you to your stated goal? Like, I think America faced that in some way in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're like, Oh, we have to like win people's hearts and minds that if we can't just like force this agenda at the barrel of a gun, like There's other things that need to happen. There's no one thing, even something as disastrous and directly impactful as violence Mm -hmm. um, isn't enough. So I don't think it's fair to make graphic design to say, oh, we shouldn't engage in these movements because it can't bring about decolonization on its own. It's like, great. There's a lot of things that need to happen to make decolonization happen. And I think graphic design and art have a place there. And we need to think about it seriously more critically. A poster is great. A social media post is great. It's something, even if it's just the maker having to like meditate on this issue while they're making the poster, that's, that's an impression that leads to something down the road. You know, I see that as valuable. Let's not stop there though. What else can we do? Yeah. What more can design do? So for example, um, I've been, trying to find artworks that were used directly during a decolonial movement in some way to help their the movement for example um there's artist named uh chanupa Hanskeluger who built these mirror shields basically during the no Dapple protest it was inspired by um basically like aunties and like grandmas in in Ukraine who were like holding up these mirrors to the riot police that were there to be like look who you are to your own people. You know, that was a very poetic gesture to do in a very difficult situation. Yeah. Um, and he took his approach as an artist that does sculpture and works with materials to be like, how do we recreate this in a way that is safe? Because we're, we're being shot with rubber pellets and bean bags and all these things. We need like an actual shield. If we're just going out there with mirrors, that stuff shatters, it's dangerous. So how can I, as a sculptor, think about, this is how you build these mirror shields with supplies that people can afford, right? That was design thinking to have not just a practical thing of having a shield to state violence, but to also have a poetic gesture at the end that helps communicate the message, right? That's to me, the type of thinking that we should be doing is like, okay, in these moments where there's direct political action happening in some way, how can we approach this as an artist and designer to help further that movement, right? Then there was a further part, what they did with the the shields is that they choreographed this movement where people will hold the shields above their head and they kind of move in this serpentine fashion. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching the video, I'm like, okay, well, that feels like now you're trying to just like, you know, satisfy some sort of artist requirement (laughs) to pitch to a museum. Like, why are we doing the snake dance, you know? But then as I, like, further looked at it and and, and thought about it, the reason why they were learning to do, like, hold the shields above their head is because there was a lot of, like, drone surveillance happening at the time. And um, activists were being, like, later persecuted by the police and picked up and arrested, um, not because of something they did in the moment, because they had some film footage of them and they're able to target people. So holding the shield above their head was a way to block their identity from these drones that were flying overhead. Now that could have been just enough. Okay. Yeah, that's the move. But what they decided to do is like, let's think about the view of the drone operator. We can create a message about what we think about oil pipelines is seeing them as these like black snakes going across our, our land. And we can reinforce that message through this choreographed thing. So one, we're blocking our identity from surveillance and we're thinking about the viewer of the drone operator and reinforcing our message there too. I'm like, that's yeah. that's you know design being used to in a poetic way that still advances the movement. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, I want more thinking like that. You know, that we can do it in certainly these direct uh, decolonial projects, but there's other ones too that like you need to be able to think as a community. What is our future? look like. This is what I'm learning about with Afrofuturism. And I really like questioned it at first because I was like, I think it's just an aesthetic, an aesthetic I don't really connect with. Mm -hmm. But I'm seeing the value of it of being that we need from our own communities to be able to reimagine what a what different futures might look like. Because otherwise we might think that inclusion within a design space, oh, they hired another person at Marvel or they hired another person at Pentagram or something. We see that as what the progress is versus, no, we are we want to, we don't want to just be a part of these, but we own like our own tech company. We're able to de- develop tech for our interests, not just be yeah. a part of some other like agenda, right? So that type of visioning is really important. And that's something that artists and designers can really help, you know, enforce that speculation through our, our craft. Um, whether it's language revitalization, We have apps, fortunately my tribe has apps and books now that are helping, uh, we put these efforts in place to record the language as much as possible Mm -hmm. in the event that our language goes dormant. They, They don't want it to become extinct by not having any records of it, but if we have enough records of it and we stop having speakers be able to speak in the language, then it's just dormant and it can be picked up again which is what happened with a lot of the like Hawaiian languages. Yeah. It went dormant for a long, a number of generations, but because there was enough recording around it, people were able to pick it back up. And now a lot of the uh, indigenous Hawaiian um, tribes are like the pinnacle of like, this is what indigenous language revitalization looks like. Um, but you might have these textbooks with their language. And that's just not the technology that was used one to pass down the language and two that students really want to engage with. Yeah. So I I initially went into design specifically for this reason of like, how do I build media around culture and language revitalization in a way that my generation wants to engage with? I saw younger people wanting to learn. I saw elders wanting to teach. There was some gap that was happening in the middle. And I felt like that's a design problem. Like let's solve this thing that is a decolonial agenda of being able to keep our language and our way of thinking and telling our stories in our language and approach it as designer how do we make an app that's enjoyable and engageable it isn't just like accurately being able to speak Lakota but being able to speak Lakota in a poetic way in a meaningful way to hold a, a Lakota thought an indigenous thought and not just speak the language those are important things that we need to design in the app and not just like how do I move through this menu you know <laughs> um, so that's kind of how, how I've been thinking about what type of role or impact can design have in these movements. I think it is really important. I don't think it's the only thing, but I think we need to keep pushing and really understanding. Yeah. I I, I think the phrase that I had was that can design have an impact? I'm told no by people who don't have any stake in the outcome. You know, I'm going to keep pursuing this question because it matters to me. Mm -hmm. and design matters to me this is where I built my skill so I'm going to use whatever skill and tool that I have for the sake of trying to realize this thing that's really important to me and I can't just be told no everything seems impossible until somebody's done it so let's just keep pushing and um see what we can come up with (laughs) I guess that's that's my my thinking around it
0: yeah I think um I I agree with that and I think um to your point with the the shields even like it doesn't have to look like one to me that that feels like design design and art and activism like and all of these things um and a a really beautiful example of that and I feel like it doesn't have to look like a poster campaign you know that, (laughs) that like it can be a much more meaningful solution if we have the ability to like you said, like if we are ourselves invested in these problems and truly understand these problems and the populations that we're um, working with, for and for, yeah, yeah. I kind of have only like one question. Um, well, I'm also really interested in the work that you're doing right now, so I I love the opportunity for, like, to like hear about that. Um, very like pressing issue that you see facing facing the field of design or facing the field of design education today.
1: So for example, like when people talk about decolonizing design, that was like a new term that I heard when I was in grad school and was like, okay, these are words that I like. Let's figure out like, what what do they mean? You know, they're together. What do you mean by this? Um, And to find out it meant like, oh, we just want to have like our our bookshelf have more designers of color in it. I'm like, okay, that's cool. I wouldn't necessarily call that decolonization. Mm -hmm. Also super important. Yes, let's completely look at this canon and like diversify it. But there's probably a better term for that, just like diversifying yeah. the canon, you know, rather than decolonizing it. Um, and I remember going back and forth into this because it's like this a,
0: it's still a canon, right? Like that's that's how I feel about it. Like, yeah, let's not maybe it doesn't exist anyway, but yeah. Yeah,
1: maybe maybe we just don't have a canon, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, or it's something that's more flexible, you know. That's why it wouldn't be a canon. Mm-hmm. You know, a canon is like way more rigid. Yeah. Um, but I remember going back and forth, like trying to figure out when I'm talking about decolonizing design, what do I mean? Do I mean trying to change the design profession or do I mean trying to use design to change this colonial situation that my people are in? And I realized it was the latter. I more care about using design to impact the decolonial movements that my community, Black and indigenous communities are a part of. Um, but I also felt like, but I do really care about the field of design. Like I do enjoy this field in this industry and there's things that do trouble me about it. And I care about being in, I like nerding out and discussing <laughs> kerning or keep coming back to kerning as like this example of tedium within the, within the discipline, but, um, you know, you see a sign and it's, anyways, yeah. it, you see horrible signs everywhere. Right. And no one
0: else everywhere. notices it unless you've taken a typography class. Yeah, right, yeah. Exactly. And
1: they're
0: just like, you're insane. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you're like, no, there's too much space between yeah. the A and the C. I don't think you understand. Um, <laughs> I, I think, I, I don't know how to talk about this necessarily, but again, it kind of goes back to, um. I think there's a, I think the term graphic design is really like tripping people up and it really like, it really makes it difficult as to like, what is what is this, you know? Um, I think I really experienced it with just students continuously who are in a graphic design program, dropping the graphic part, right? And just saying, I'm a designer because it didn't feel like it encompassed who they were. I think part of it is just like the origins of where it comes from, of being, you know, W.A. Dwiggins way of branding himself in a different way in an ad agency. Like, and it's still very focused on commercial, still very focused on print as a technology. It's still very focused on like serving corporate clients in terms of branding and building logos. And design has proliferated so far beyond that, that I'm not sure that, that phrase holds anymore like maybe there needs to be a a different term Um, we are designing sound Is that a graphic i don't think so but like that's a part of the motion graphics that we're making um or the environmental graphics that we're making we're working with you know time different materials and and it's just like i think the other part of it is it it takes out other communities what I see is like visual communication in some way, and not even just visual, but like poetic communication. It takes away so many other cultures. Yeah, it really like emphasizes what culture ha- like prized the book or the printed page. Um, and I, you know, I mentioned this within my own tribe, who didn't have a written language. We had an oral language. The book is not a technology that's embraced today, or has been a big part. It's such a small part of our multi-millennial history that uh, you know to say the other things that we have made are not able to be a part of the design canon because we don't embrace the book, or we don't, we didn't need logos. uh, I think is wrong. You know, takes whole parts of the world out. Yeah, um, but there was visual communication that happened. Yeah. So that line I've noticed within, uh, just again speaking for my own tribe, the line between what was a a useful tool object that somebody designed versus something that had personal meaning. So they decided they didn't just make for utility. They also decided to put their own visual, meaningful language on it. I'm like, that's graphic design if they're etching in symbols that have meaning to them, right? That's graphic design for that object versus a spiritual object. Okay, that useful tool is actually used as a technology to engage in some spiritual activity. They didn't need to separate those things out. That's what art was. You know, it wasn't in galleries. It that's what graphic design was. It wasn't being mass produced. It was for an individual. But there was still visual communication that was happening. There's still some sort of poetics. There's still some sort of enhancement of this object To communicate something that should be considered graphic design but it's more likely to end up in a historical museum you know a natural history museum or something (laughs) and uh so i think that that term is really tripping people up and maybe it's time for rebranding what the name of this field is um it might even loosen up within your own experience of like who gets to be in the canon then you know, who, who gets to be talked about, what types of topics get talked about when we don't emphasize the graphic design term.
0: Yeah, I do. I, if you have a second, I would love to hear about what you're working on also currently, because you said you had a show, right? That you were setting up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I had a a solo show, which actually should be called a duet. Cause I had a, a, I worked with, I collaborated with my housemate actually was in the program, but um and it, she's a tremendous uh like person who works with CGI can do like these generative graphics um and is really into like deeply into research around cities and how uh interfaces and technology shape the way that we're able to move through those cities uh, like psychogeography a lot of words that I don't fully understand yet but like I'm really <laughs> super interested in yeah <laughs> um and is really into world building and uh, during when Omicron kind of flared up, uh, we were just in the same space all the time and there's sort of this cross pollination of our ideas that came together. Um, and we kind of built this space. So a lot of my research is focusing on what I call, uh, decolonial poetics or unsettling grammars. And it's basically, We're looking at moments where some sort of decolonial action or activity is happening. Um, Somebody makes a gesture, they do some sort of move for survival, for freedom, for liberation, whatever it is for, for protest. Um, And we're, we're looking at how that grammar impacted that moment. So a lot of time it is thinkers going back and looking at certain moments, like, no, we need to focus on what has happened here. And let's talk about what this gesture meant, whether it's like, an eye roll, you know, Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, the subversion of an eye roll, like that's, that's a grammar. Let's look at like, what does that mean to have this gesture that allows you to survive, but is still like allowing you to exert some sort of agency or something like capoeira where, um, you have, uh, visibility and, or legibility and illegibility playing at the same time, right. Where, um, you have uh, people who are learning to fight for the sake of self-defense and even maybe overthrowing a plantation, but they're masking it as dance. So to not, you know, to make it legible in a different way, what, what is, what if you took that grammar and you brought it into art and design and really like thought about that and use that as a tool for those moments of you know, when we're working on decolonial projects, okay, this is how we need to think about design rather than um, maybe like tie- hierarchy. <laughs> maybe that's not as important. You know,
0: <laughs> um, I don't want to cough in the middle of your sentence. Sorry.
1: Oh, please, no cough. You gotta cough.
0: <laughs> um, I choked on my water, of course. Um, sorry, if you could go back to what you're saying, restate it, so I can cut this out.
1: <laughs> all, all good. Um. So what I'm doing with the continuation of my thesis research at UCLA is just looking at these grammars that I've pulled and try to think around them, make around them, see if other artworks are really like talking about them in in a particular type of way. Um, and, And just pose that as a new way of like, maybe approaching decolonial design. As we think about, we look to decolonial movements, we find gestures that are happening there. We practice them as artists and designers. And then we find ways to bring that back into decolonial movements. That's pretty much Whoa. the overall flow yeah. process, right? Um, but yeah, so so that's what I'm doing research on. And what we did when we collaborated in doing this world building exercise, this is like thinking about Afro and indigenous futurism um, or speculative futures or alternate futures. Um, we had her come up with like a future scenario for a city that's following along the research that she's doing. And then we kind of ask the question, how do indigenous people show up in this new space? Um, and I pulled from one of the decolonial grammars that I'm, I've been researching um, around haunting um, and basically use it as like, okay, this is how indigenous people continue to exist in this space is through, as, as spirits, as haunting this, this space. And um, so that's that's kind of what we did. And we were like, how do you make this experiential space? Again, thinking in the future around pedagogy, how do you build a space that like shifts people's thinking about how they might approach things? Um, I know it's really dark, but like one of the, the questions that I think about, like people just automatically from our community, well, I would say, okay, if you look at like science fiction, a lot of times they're not projecting black or indigenous people to be in the future. Um, and so the reaction amongst black and indigenous communities are, "There's black and indigenous people in the future." I'm, so, I'm sorry, whatever George Lucas you want to think. like there are black people in the future. Um, uh, and then I guess my question is, well, how do we show up in the future? Uh, maybe we don't survive. And in which case, then that future question is like, well, how do we want to die then? Uh, you know? Um, or, I guess the, the the thing around haunting is that we might not exist in a physical space, but our origin story comes from this land, and we had this whole metaphysical world in which we were constantly engaging with spirits. Um, we are a part of this land. We'll always be here. So we're, our spirit will always haunt this land. And what's happened in terms of the genocide that's happened on this continent will always haunt America in some way. And that haunting isn't something that gets resolved. The haunting is is the resolving. Um, So there isn't a ghostbuster situation that happens. Like the haunting is what makes right this injustice that's happened this horrible atrocity. Uh, So just thinking about that future, in which case, like if we are to pass, how do we want to pass? I know I want to pass as indigenous as possible. Like I want to pass with my language. I want to pass with our burial ceremonies. I want to be connected with my ancestors in some way. And that's how that impacts how I want to act today by thinking about that that future scenario. Um, but yeah, so that's basically that's basically what I'm working on now is looking at these grammars, trying to find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of really amazing black and indigenous writers who are like going back and looking at historical moments, looking at moments of justice, looking at contemporary things and being like, we need to look at this in another way. like. This is meaningful for this reason. Um, And they oftentimes give some sort of terminology around it. And I'm like, that's a very useful and generative terminology. allows me to hold a different thought in my mind. It like maps the situation in a different way. Now, how do I, as an artist and designer, really meditate on that through my making practice? And how does that become a skill and a tool that I can use in future projects in the same way of kerning type? That is a tool that is really important it makes a difference to me, maybe not to other people, but <laughs> that's a tool that I've continued to use with because I've been able to think about it and I've been able to visualize it. And I can, it took time to learn how to see, how to balance space. Well, what if we focused on these other grammars from decolonial movements instead and mm-hmm. had that shape our practice? So that's really what I'm, that's what I'm doing. As long as they're going to let me do it, <laughs> I'm going keep, <laughs> to keep investigating that.
0: That's very cool. Yeah, I, um... I also took a, I think what kind of like opened me up to a lot of thinking of not design as just this like kind of commercial space was obviously a lot of design history, but I kind of like accidentally, I just got really interested in art history and then was like, hey, how come there's not really too many like design history courses? Um Amen. And then took um, like an art and activism class and a lot of this is design um, most of this is design um 100%. we aren't we aren't teaching that as you know i, I want to use the can- canon term again but like we aren't teaching that in design courses and then that that's very cool that you're that you're doing that work yeah
1: yeah I, I'm glad that you're doing that too and I think i think
0: that's the hopefully people are able to
1: have an educational experience in design where when they come up against something and they, they're able to continue to ask that question and investigate it so like with thesis students that I work with in design you know even just again like why haven't you been able to design in your language like what is that what is what are you missing in your education because you're not able to design in your language yeah. or they're not able to even like visualize the people that they come from in the field in some way like I asked them to think about that and I asked them to pull that apart they feel uncomfortable with design in some way I asked them to investigate well what is that that pain point Um, that might not be what they end up wanting to do their thesis on but I I think it's valuable to be able to ask those questions because I know I certainly came in like do I belong in this field not only do I belong in this field, is there space for the people I care about and the things I care about in this field? And I think many you know, women and people of color, people who have been marginalized from the field are continually asking that question because they feel those pain points of like, where do I belong in here? Yeah. One thing I really valued about RISD and thinking through thesis was one, they're like, we don't know what a graphic design thesis is supposed to be. Like there's no consensus. If you go from one program to the next, There's a different understanding of what a design thesis is supposed to be. So there's, it's not the same as you're studying biology and there's a very clear way, like how you present a thesis. Um, But two, I felt like a lot of the thesis was saying, well, I think this thing that I care about is design Mm -hmm. and I wanna build a practice around it. And I'm going to hold that ground. Even when people question and say, no, you just need to like make this logo. You're like, no, that's not the only form of design. This has meaning and this has value. Uh, and how do I hold that practice for me in some way? How do I not let that die? I really want students, particularly the thesis students I work with to come away, not with just like a portfolio book, but hopefully a question that like keeps them up at night and makes them want to keep working on it. Even when they leave the program, um, something that is a generative question in there, you know, hopefully not debilitating, but like, you know, generative in some way. I think that that's what um, a design education should be. I don't think that design is solidified yet. We need to keep questioning it, keep pushing the boundaries, keep making spaces for the things that we care about, the discussions that we care about, the outcomes that we wanna see. Um, and yeah, thinking through, I'm still learning pedagogy, I'm still learning how to teach, but that's continually what I wanna keep putting into what I do.
0: Yeah, I, I think, yeah, without without like a personal feeling design, sort of be hollow to me so this is yeah yeah <laughs>
1: that's such a real feeling though yeah that really is I, I felt like design on its own because I'm sometimes I really struggle with feeling like design on its own is interesting I think it's like design plus some other thing outside of design is what really like sings to me
0: mm-hmm. uh I, I like, like her-
1: the art art book fairs or something like I tend to get overwhelmed and like there's just so much design happening um I have to find the ones that I felt like have some sort of thread or like substance behind it that like really resonates with me that just might be my approach some people really love the aesthetic Uh, but anyways (laughs) that's what you just yeah Yeah,
0: that's kind of all I have all right thank you so much well thank
1: you so much Grace have a have a good weekend
0: you too bye This podcast was recorded on May 4th, 2022 at 1 o'clock p.m. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check us out on Instagram at designisnotneutral. Thank you!